Welcome to the Vancouver True Crime Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm the host of the show. This episode, I'd like to offer a very strong trigger warning. I'll be talking about some very dark subject matter. This podcast is called The Stolen Sisters of East Vancouver, a history of crime, poverty, and the missing and murdered, ranging from 1960 2022. The downtown east side is a neighborhood in Vancouver, Canada. It's of extreme contrast to the rest of the city and especially the rest of the downtown neighborhoods. Most of downtown Vancouver has been redeveloped over the last few decades. There's lots of beautiful restaurants, trendy bars, shopping, office towers, parks, and seawalls, and for the most part, Vancouver is a pretty safe and low-crime city. But when you enter the downtown east side, it's like you cross an invisible line from the rest of the city. You enter a nightmare world just half a block away from most of the other neighborhoods. The first thing you notice is the sunken looks of their faces, the emaciated bodies, eyes that look at you, dead blank stares. The sidewalk is full of a makeshift street market and open drug use crack cocaine in doorways, drinking, people doing drugs openly using needles, like for example, like in Pigeon Park, which is a small triangular park in the north corner of Hastings and Carroll Street. It's full of pigeons, tents, and heavy drug users. The the smell of Hastings Street really hits you. It's a combination of heavy exhaust. Uh, it's a major uh, the Hastings Street especially is a major artery of of trucks and diesel buses and and cars and and commercial trucks that are crossing from one part of the city to the next. There's heavy exhaust uh, diesel buses. The streets are very busy. Everything kind of has a grimy, gritty. Uh, look and feel to it the smell of stale urine and garbage the buildings are old and very poor shape it's very loud of all the traffic and lots of sirens almost non-stop police ambulance and fire trucks so it's it's a very uh overwhelming to the senses as you as you walk as i said you cross this invisible line and it's like holy fuck you know and you know, many of the hotels are half, you know, health hazards themselves. There's black mold problems, lots of pests, poor plumbing, and shared bathrooms and showers. Especially dangerous for the the female residents that have to share a bathroom with the entire hotel. Uh, there's massive pest problems, and many of the buildings are controlled by different gangs and street gangs for the drug trade. Uh, each building, you know, according to my research and talking to former drug dealers and people who lived in the area, uh, according to their testimony, each building can range about forty to fifty thousand dollars each day in drug sales. The residents of the downtown east side consume about three hundred million dollars worth of drugs each year, and. You know, it's a it's a major drug pipeline. A million dollars a day is spent on hard drug sales on the streets of the downtown east side. It's worth noting, though, that many of the NGOs have been buying up some of these hotels and managing them, 
bringing them up to uh, health code and building standards. And and there's you know there are more and more of these buildings are being bought up, and so that that is good. But there are a lot of hotels that are left that are in horrific shape. Uh, just to give you an idea, uh, I have a friend who's a social worker. He's uh, He's been working on the downtown east side for probably about 18 years. And just to give you an idea, what he has to do each day is that he arrives to work to his office with his clothes that he's wearing. He arrives to his office with the clothes that he's wearing. And then he has to open uh, up a Rubbermaid container, take off his clothes, put all his clothes in the Rubbermaid container, take another Rubbermaid made container with a different change of clothes, put those ones on, and then he goes out and sees his clients while he goes into these hotels. He's been doing this even before the pandemic because a lot of these hotels are filled with bed bugs and pests, and a lot of them are, are, are serious health hazards. Uh, many of these uh, hotels, as I said, are controlled by different gangs and drugs, and they net a lot of drug sales. The residents of the downtown east side do consume a lot of drugs. And like I said, it, it's it's very overwhelming to the senses, seeing raw suffering addiction, seeing women noodling. The In my observations, uh, I've worked a lot in very close proximity of the downtown east side, like a lot of my offices that I worked for had an, uh, my, uh, had an office in Water Street, which is in a neighborhood in Gastown, very trendy, full of restaurants and bars and fancy firms and IT companies. And, you know, we're, you're, we're less than half a block away from the downtown east side. So when I leave the office, go for lunch, grow, you know, do, do, you know, do stuff, you have a lot of interaction with Hastings Street. And being a Vancouver resident all my life, I lived downtown for over uh, 10 years plus, and most of my jobs had offices in the downtown core. So I have a lot of experience with Hastings Street. And so there's one thing I do notice is that I never see men doing this, but for some reason it seems to affect women more, uh, especially the women that do heavy amounts of crack cocaine. They do this thing called noodling where their legs are still, but their upper bodies are just flopping around. It's almost like one of those things that, that car lots have with those mans that flap around in the wind. It's pretty distressing. It's pretty, pretty crazy to see that. And, uh, you know, I see a lot of homeless men, this literally skin and bones passed out on sidewalks and looking very close to death. I once saw a blonde woman. She was wearing only her underwear. She looked like a human skeleton. Her skin was filthy, covered in sores and street grime. And I remember being horrified thinking, because in the media in Vancouver, they love to promote Vancouver, the best place on earth, the world's most livable city and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's a beautiful place, you know, but it has some issues, you know, especially Hastings Street, right? So it, it, you, when you see Hastings Street for what it is, you, you then understand the level of vulnerability of these people and how they can be very easy prey to creeps, predators, and serial killers. Most people who are residents of the downtown east side are suffering from serious mental health conditions, 
and they also have some type of substance abuse as well. But like I said, I've had a lot of experience interacting with Hastings Street and working in close proximity. In my experience, most of the people that I've encountered are harmless. For the most part, they're not bad people. They are outcasts from society and they come from every single part of Canada. They drift here. Only about 13% are born in Vancouver. In many of my other podcasts, especially the podcast series I'd call Vancouver the Beautiful and Ugly, I kind of go into this. Um, Vancouver is possibly, you know, probably one of the more milder uh, cities in Canada. So you get a lot of people who do drift here because they think it's going to be an easier city. It's warmer. A lot of Canadian cities are very cold, especially in the wintertime, and many people believe that it'll be easier to live in Vancouver than the rest of Canada. The more violent people who end up in the downtown east side uh, are from other parts of Canada. Many provinces do not pay for them to have to have them sent back to face their punishment. And what that means is, is like crimes like break and entry, uh, assault, maybe theft, those types of ones, they're not going to pay, like someone in, like the government of Ontario will not pay to have them transported to face their punishment. Or of course, if it's murder, rape, or something very serious, there'd be a Canada-wide warrant, they'll do that. So there's a lot of people that flee other jurisdictions because they know their province is not going to fly them back to face punishment. There was a program, I'm not sure, I have to look this up, there was a program that was based on donations and fundraising that was paying to have some of these people um, f to fly back and to their provinces and face their, pro their punishment. Uh, again, uh, knowing social workers who do work down there, and one of the other issues is other provinces have been guilty of sending their undesirables to BC, giving them a one-way bus ticket. And of course, you know, they end up on Hastings Street. Um, recently, the area has been more violent. Uh, there's, there's been more stabbing, more random attacks, and there's been more rival gang fighting over the lucrative drug turf. My understanding too, because of the drug sales are so enormous down there, Many other gangs from other parts of Canada have been sending crews to try to get a, a stake or a piece of the action because, again, you control one building, you can be making over 40 to 50K each and every day. So there's a lot of incentive for people in the drug trade to try to get a piece of that action. Again, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, I've been to a lot of different uh, cities across North America through my work. I've been to about 40 uh, cities throughout North America, mostly work-related. And many cities, of course, have inner cities. They have uh, poverty and they have, you know, drug problems. One thing what I find is unique about uh, Vancouver, which I haven't seen in other cities to this, as this in your face is, is this massive street drug use right out in the open. Most cities do have those problems, but it's kind of hidden and behind closed doors. 
where Vancouver literally walked down Hastings Street, especially on a Welfare Wednesday. People, hundreds of people, are cracking up, shooting up, without a care in the world. And, and also, too, it's worth mentioning, again, a lot of these people who live in this area are very vulnerable, uh, mental health issues, and, you know, facing a lot of trauma, abuse, and, you know, their, their lives are hell. And so having access to street drugs, especially opiates, is too tempting for a lot of people. I find, too, it's kind of on a different note, especially at nighttime. You know, if I was around Hastings Street at nighttime, let's say I'm going to a nightclub and I'm going somewhere kind of on the offskirts of Hastings Street, like, like Gastown. Gastown has a lot of nightclubs. You're one block off of Hastings Street. So you're out at night clubbing. You leave the club. You walk out. You're on Hastings Street. I find at nighttime for me personally, it has a very dark, sinister feel to the street, especially at nighttime. You know, places like Blood Alley are claimed to be some of the most haunted parts of uh, Vancouver. There's some interesting history of Blood Alley, and um, it's a definitely uh, another kind of area where there's a lot of heavy drug use and people congregate and do heavy amounts of drugs, but it's very old and cobblestone looking. And it's, it's rumored to be one of the most haunted parts of the city. There's claims of a woman all in black walking in the back alleys of Blood Alley. Over the hundred year history of the downtown east side, it's an easy argument of, of almost every square inch of those streets have Someone has died on those streets. When you combine the massive amounts of overdose, the drug use, the poverty, violence, the, the streets are literally paved in blood. You know, if the fentanyl overdose in itself has claimed so many people, like so many people, and we, we are still in a fentanyl crisis. So we had the most deaths from fentanyls, mostly in the downtown east side, in record level, there's more people who died from fentanyl overdose than from the COVID uh, pandemic situation. Uh, so I'll tell a story, and I think this story illustrates the potential horror of the downtown east side. So I worked uh, in an office on Water Street. It was for a software company, and... I met my friend for lunch who works in a different office and he, uh, he suggested, he suggested that we go to save on meats. Save on meats is a kind of an iconic, uh, meat shop that also has a bit of a, a restaurant. It has a restaurant breakfast, a bit of a pub. It's kind of a cool place. Actually, when Anthony Bourdain came to Vancouver, he had a burger there. If you watch the episode of Anthony Bourdain, uh, in Vancouver, he goes to save on meat. It's actually a pretty cool episode. I'm a huge fan of Anthony Bourdain, so rest in peace. Uh, it was very sad when he uh, committed suicide. Um, anyways, so it was summertime, very hot, extremely hot. It was probably in the high 30s, which is about 90, the 90s. And I was wearing, because I had a client meeting, so I was wearing dress pants, a short sleeve dress shirt, 
a tie. So I kind of look like a Mormon with that outfit, which is kind of funny. But anyways, so we go to Save On Meat, walk up Hastings Street. It's like people are just like passed out. Everyone's looking pretty rough. You know, again, people smoking crack in front of you. And it's very crowded and hot, stuffy. And we get to Save On Meat. We walk in. I go walk towards the back and there's like booths and I sit down, wait for my friend and the booth uh, in front of me is a woman and she looks pretty rough. Like she looks like someone from Hastings Street and she has a bunch of little dime bags of, you know, obviously her drugs all divvied up for her, you know, do her sales for the day. And of course I pretended not to see them, but she has one of those cheap, uh, kind of those kicks strollers and there's a newborn baby in there without a blanket no receiving blanket nothing to cover the baby up the baby is really newborn I have two children so I know a lot about babies the baby looks like it's a couple weeks old and just laying there flopped in the kickstart stroller my friend arrived I ordered a burger and I'm eating and I swear I didn't see that baby move once. So I'm starting to get scared. I'm like, does this woman have a dead baby? Like I'm kind of freaking out, right? So I'm sitting there, I'm staring at the baby and, and it, I, it hasn't moved nothing. Hasn't opened its mouth, haven't opened its eyes. Its mouth is kind of open, it's flopped. And it just flopped with its arms and legs open. And so I don't know really what to do, right? So anyways, and then her husband or boyfriend or whoever, the baby daddy shows up and he looks pretty like a tough character. He has long, long hair. He's skinny, wiring, not wearing a shirt. He looks like a guy that can, you know, put up a pretty decent fight. He looks like, you know, he looked like a guy that would, you know, be violent. And and I could see them, they're, you know, they're t- talking about their drug sales and they're, you know, making these little dime bags with, with uh, whatever dope they have in there. And, and the baby, I'm staring at it and it's not moving. So when, when my, with my friend, when we finished eating, I'm getting up and I open my phone and I put a picture of my kid up and I say to the woman, I said, oh, you have a new baby. Congratulations. Show her a picture of my kid. And right away, the guy comes and he says to her, is this guy bugging you? And before, she, and then she looked at him and said, oh, no, no. And I put my hand out. Hey, congratulations on your kid. You know, shake his hand, kind of, you know, diffuse the situation. Because all I want to know is, is, is this kid alive or not? This baby alive? And and he gives me this, like, the creepiest, like, joker smile because he's completely wasted. He's been drinking like a fish. Like, while I'm sitting there eating my burger, I've watched him probably pound back about four pints of beer and a shot. And he looks like he's on something else, right? And I look down and, oh, my God, thank God, the baby moved. It opened its mouth. Its eyes opened. So I'm like, oh, God, thank God, the baby's alive. So, you know, that's all I want to know. I just want to know if that baby was alive. But I'm just horrified, right? Because obviously, you know, the parents are pretty pretty sketchy. So then I, wa- I watch them. They, they stroll out of there. Then off they go down Hastings Street. And I'm just thinking, wow, like what a life that baby's going to have, right? So th- that's like the horror of Hastings Street. You see stuff that just, just you know, just blows your mind like I I remember one time I was walking was at work I was on my lunch break and half a block from my from where I work 
cops come rolling up really hard and heavy sirens. They jump out of the car. They pull guns. A guy about 10 feet from me, I guess he went into one of the stores and he stole a kitchen knife. And uh, he was like flashing it around. So obviously someone called the cops. I'm like 10 feet away from the cops have guns out screaming, put down the knife. I just casually just keep walking. You know, that, that's Hastings Street. You don't know what to expect there, right? But again, I want to emphasize, majority of the people who live down there are not bad people. I've had a lot of interactions with them. I've, you know, people who live, you know, who are not like me, especially if they live on the street or close to my office, I would bring them warm clothes in the wintertime, buy them hot chocolate, coffee, uh, occasional meal at McDonald's or Tim Hortons. And most of the times they've been pretty respectful for, to me and I've been respectful to them. Majority of the people who live down there are not bad people. However, there are a lot of bad people that do go down there. The population is approximately about 15,000. 7,000 are living in low-income housing, hotel rooms. The rest of the population is pretty much homeless, living in temporary shelters, tent cities, and various parks throughout the downtown east side. However, under these very harsh circumstances and conditions, it has a very strong community, history of social activism. Every Valentine's Day, there's the annual missing march for the, what they, about 900 women have gone missing in the last three decades from the downtown east side, according to their statistics. There's also a lot of dedicated frontline workers who save many lives from drug overdoses and social workers, NGOs that provide programs and help to the people of the downtown east side. So there's a, a large population of very dedicated people trying to provide help and services to these people. So, and it's also worth mentioning too that the government of BC, the provincial, the federal government and the city of Vancouver spend in a combination of a million dollars a day in services for the health and welfare of these people. The fentanyl crisis has caused an overwhelming amount of overdoses and social problems and death. And it's still ongoing. Many of the drugs that are consumed in the downtown east side, the crack, cocaine, heroin, and meth has now been contaminated with fentanyl and benzodiazepine to, as a cutting agent, but making these drugs more dangerous. In this series, I have done a lot of research on Robert Picton. In this episode, I'm not going to go too much into him because I have a lot of uh, writing I've done. I've written over 100 pages, and I'm going to be having a series just specifically just on the events of the Robert Picton pig farm and all the atrocities that occurred on that farm. On December 9th, 2007, Robert Picton, a pig farmer from Port Coquitlam, it's about a 30-minute drive from the downtown east side, was charged for the death of six women. He was also charged in the death of additional 20 women, many of them from the downtown east side. 20 of these charges were stayed by the Crown in, in 2010. In December 2007, he was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole for 25 years. It's the longest sentence available under Canadian law for murder. Following Picton's arrest in the aftermath 
attention was given to a prior attempted murder of a sex worker in March of 1997. During an altercation on the farm, the victim informed police that Picton had handcuffed her, but she escaped after suffering several lacerations, disarming him, stabbing him with a knife. The charges were stayed in January 1998. Charges are stayed when a judge or Crown decides that it would be bad for the justice system for the case to continue. This means the issue of guilt or innocence is never determined. Stays can be granted when the state has acted unfairly, including the failure to bring the case to trial in a timely manner. The missing women's commission of inquiry had four mandates. Evaluate the response of the police to reports of missing women from the downtown east side of Vancouver. Evaluate the reason for staying charges against Robert Picton in January 1998. Recommend changes regarding how missing women and suspected homicides are handled. Recommend changes on how cases are handled when they involve more than one investigating organization. In 2012, the Commission issued a final report, which includes a number of recommendations. The Commission office was closed on August 1st, 2013. Indigenous women and girls represent 16% of all female homicides in Canada, while being only 4% of the female population in Canada. Project Sister Watch. Sister Watch was developed in collaboration with the police and community to help address and respond to the remaining gaps in care for missing and murdered women in BC. The committee has been working together since 2016 to eliminate violence against women and girls in the downtown east side of Vancouver. Information sharing practice to support women, in addition to the committee of community leaders, the Vancouver Police Department, and members of the Women's Memorial March Committee, the Sister Watch tip line is available for people to call who need support or to know information about crimes against women. The Sister Watch tip line is 604-215-4777. Anyone with information about crimes against women or any other matter affecting the safety of those in the downtown east side is encouraged to call the 24-hour Sister Watch tip line. Again, that number is 604-215-4777. Project Rescue was in response to the many violent drug dealers who were preying on addicted, marginalized women in the downtown east side. Women of the downtown east side have been complaining to police what they feared most were predatory drug dealers who conducted their business with violence, torture, and terror, and preyed on the weak, addicted, and women. An investigation team chosen from various areas of the Vancouver Police Department, including major crimes, gangs, drugs, financial crime, and beat enforcement team, to proactively target these individuals who are victimizing the most vulnerable and the most marginalized in the downtown Eastside community. One of the people that they caught was a sex offender with a history of assaulting young teen First Nation Aboriginal girls 
was among the 11 arrested in downtown Vancouver. The, the Vancouver police campaign was targeting the worst of the worst violent drug dealing of predators in the downtown east side. February 11, 2011, the suspects were arrested through Project Rescue and faced, they faced a combined of 47 counts, including charges of sexual assault, drug trafficking, and extortion. Police said that each person had an alleged role in the exploitation and degrading the vulnerable women in the downtown neighborhood. So over the years, I have heard horror stories about these predatory drug dealers, for even for Debts for as small as $10, women get beaten, they get violently abused, their heads shaved. I've heard women being pushed out of windows on top of roofs, fingers being chopped off, forced into prostitution, and just viciously abused. So basically what happens, a woman meets a predatory drug dealer who's all too willing to give them drugs on credit. When they can't pay or they're late with their payments, their nightmare begins. One of the suspects that police put into custody was a sex offender and drug trafficking, Martin Tremblay. I will be doing a standalone podcast about this creep, and I have one of his survivors who's, going to, who's been working with me for the last six months, and we're going to do an interview and talk about some of her experiences. It was her effort that helped declare him as a dangerous offender. So in this particular case... In the Project Rescue, he faced four counts of trafficking cocaine, uh, one count of cocaine possession for the purpose of trafficking. The police made a public announcement and a plea for more of his victims to come forward. He's in jail now. He can't hurt you, Inspector Dean Robinson said. We believe the only way we can guarantee that he won't harm more women if he stays in jail. Martin Tremblay was found guilty in 2003 of five counts of sexual assaults. Tremblay liked to use alcohol and drugs to lure and incapacitate his victims. He was released after serving only a single year in prison. Many of the women's advocates have complained that not enough was being done to protect the public during Tremblay's sentencing. He was not bound by any conditions that he stays away from young girls on the release from prison. Martin Tremblay murdered two other teens. One, her name was Martha Hernandez. Her body was discovered lifeless in his Richmond home. Her friend, Carla Lalonde, died the same day when her body was dropped on a street. Both girls died of a lethal mix of drugs and alcohol. Martin Tremblay was convicted in 2013 for two counts of criminal negligence causing death and failure to provide the necessities to life. He was labeled a dangerous offender. The designation of dangerous offender is reserved for Canada's most violent criminals and sexual predators. The Crown Attorney can seek the designation during sentencing, but they must show that there's a high risk that that criminal will commit violent or sexual offenses in the future. The designation carries an automatic sentence of imprisonment for an indeterminate period, but every seven years they can apply for parole. 
dangerous offender laws have root in the 1947 Habitual Act, solely with offenders with lengthy criminal records, and then the 1948, the Criminal Sexual Psychopath Act, and then in 1977, the designation dangerous offender replaced both habitual offender and dangerous sexual offender. Changes to the Criminal Code of Canada in 2008 requires some repeat offenders convicted of three or more times of violent crimes or sex crimes to prove they are not a danger to society, putting the onus on the offender rather than the crown makes it easier to designate some repeat offenders as dangerous offenders, which effectively can put them behind bars for life. Dangerous offenders can reapply for parole every seven years, like I said, but the indeterminate sentence usually equals life in prison. Correctional Service of Canada profiled 179 dangerous offenders and showed that 85% of them have committed sexual offenses while only 3% were convicted of a homicide. Although dangerous offender provisions can apply to all criminals, most people who are given such a designation who are in custody for sexual offenses. For example, 85% of dangerous offenders were sentenced for sexual assaults and 41% included pedophilia. Tremblay was previously convicted of five counts of sexual assault in 2002 and sentenced to 14 months in prison. He was found guilty of giving drugs and alcohol to five indigenous teenage girls, then videotaping his sex acts after they passed out. The sexual assaults and administering a nauseous substance for an incident involving a 15-year-old girl in Burnaby in 2005. Obtaining the sexual services for money from a person under the age of 18 involving a 16-year-old victim in Burnaby in 2006. Sexual assault administrating a nauseous substance for an incident involving a 14-year-old girl in Vancouver alleged to have occurred between February 2007 and August of 2007. Sexual assault administrating a nauseous substance for an allegation involving a 19-year-old woman between September 2005 and May 2007 in Burnaby. In March 2010, Martin Tremblay was linked to two teens' death who died within hours of each other. Martin Tremblay liked to lure young, vulnerable girls from broken homes, many of them Aboriginal, to his home to party. Carla Lalonde, 16 years old, Martha Hernandez, 17, had partied at Tremblay's home the night before they died and as a result of overdosing on a com combination of drugs and alcohol. Carla was particularly had a close relationship with Martin Tremblay. She called him her street dad. He would give her money and gifts and also get her to invite her other underage friends to come over and party. Martin would supply the teens with methadone and alcohol and various other drugs. Martin gave the two girls powdered methadone to snort. Martha 
and Carla were heavily intoxicated. Before they arrived in Tremblay's home, the two girls were drinking in a Burnaby Park before they met Tremblay. It's alleged that the girls became sick and threw up before passing out. Carla was in medical distress, and instead of helping them with any medical help, he took advantage of these girls by sexually assaulting them. Rather than calling 911, Tremblay had a female friend load Carla in a van and drive them to Burnaby where she was dumped and left unconscious and found dead on a Burnaby street. Witnesses says she was dumped from a van. The city of Burnaby RCMP responded at 12.40 a.m. to a response of a woman laying on the ground on Rumble Street near Patterson Avenue. She was rushed to hospital. She died of cardiac arrest in the hospital. Residents at Tremblay's home then called the Richmond RCMP about eight hours later to report a young woman in medical stress who later died. Martha Horrendez died later after being rushed by ambulance from Tremblay's Richmond's home. Toxicology results indicated the apparent cause of death of both girls was a lethal combination of alcohol and drugs. So I will be going uh, more into Martin Tremblay. He's a monster. I'm glad he's a dangerous offender. I hope he'll be locked up for the rest of his life. As the survivor who's uh, been sharing her testimony with me, every time she has to go to a parole uh, meeting regarding his parole uh, release, because every seven years he can reapply for parole, she says the same thing. He will be the next William Willie Picton if he's ever released. So even though uh, this podcast is going to focus mostly on in, uh, Indigenous missing murdered women in the downtown east side, uh, it's worth noting that women of all colors, all types of shades of skin tone and nationalities have are represented and murdered in this neighborhood and in across Canada. So regardless of their skin tone, regardless of their nationality, they are all our stolen sisters and I honor all of their memories and I hope justice for all of them and my heart goes out to their families and their loved ones who have have the trauma of dealing with the deaths of their loved ones. So this is something that I want to talk about too and I'm going to get more into this uh, in later podcasts. So I'm talking about serial killers hunting large swaths of Canada. From the West Coast to the surrounding areas of Toronto, there's evidence to suggest that serial killers are haunting disproportionately Indigenous women and girls as their prey. And those serial killers likely number far more than average person imagines. According, this is according to Michael Arntzfield, a Western University criminologist and serial killer expert who studies murder patterns for the Murder Accountability Project in the United States. There's very good research on the West Coast and the Northwest in the U.S. and in Canada, which helps explain a lot of the patterns seen in the Lower Mainland, Metro Vancouver, B.C., and in the Highway of Tears region, Arntfield said, referring to the 724-kilometer stretch of Highway 16 in northern BC, where 18 to 50 women 
mostly indigenous, have gone missing, have been found murdered since 1960s. While Canadian data is hard to come by, data generated in the United States is helpful in guessing the pattern north of the border. When we input all the American data in murderdata.org, we see both coasts light up. We see the D.C. metro region and the Great Lakes region light up, and and we see major trucking centers light up, Arnsfield said. We don't know for sure in Canada because no one will give us the data, but for sure you would see Edmonton up to Fort McMurray light up. This is already well established, certainly in Manitoba through to northern Ontario, down through the Golden Horseshoe and the greater Toronto area as well. It's something police in Canada are reluctant to talk about because something that many missing, murdered Indigenous women and girls have advocates have long theorized. While serial killers in urban centres can be from an assortment walks of life who hunt victims in a variety of settings and circumstances, those who prey in isolated rural areas are often long-haul truckers. But don't think that makes them easier to catch, Arnsfield said. The FBI Highway Serial Killer Initiative has about 400 to 450 offender profiles identified subjects on its database alone that are involved in the trucking industry for the entire interstate system in the U.S. Many of them travel back and forth across the Canadian-U.S. border, giving them significant distance and jurisdictions involved, the lack of witnesses and fresh forensic evidence, and often the fact that the victim is found nowhere near where she went missing is often the cases and often tough to solve. It's a troubling issue that the trucking industry has come to accept, in the U.S. at least. Truckers Against Trafficking is a group that trains truckers how to be on the lookout for women in danger, and also predators among them. It's not known how effective these tools are in prevention. In Canada, we know even less about serial killers on truck routes because the data just ain't available. We've tried to build a database in Canada that would allow us to very clearly see and visualize on a screen from coast to coast who's being targeted, what numbers and how we faced roadblocks at every turn in this country. Lack of political will to have such a database is only one part of the problem. Murder data in Canada is owned by StatsCan, and it decides rather than the experts who should know what, essentially controls the narrative on homicides. And it's too often Indigenous women aren't properly listed as murder victims. Rather, they're categorized as accidental deaths or suicides or death by misadventure. So while StatCan can say the murder rates for Indigenous women are six times higher for than non-Indigenous women, it actually might be higher if some deaths were properly deemed homicides. While most murders 
are found to be committed by those known to the victims, usually by someone close to them. Arnsfield pointed out that in 2016, there was a new overall low in Canada and in the U.S. for murder clearance rates. There are three prevailing hypotheses as to why murders are getting harder to solve. The way society has gone more, there are three prevailing hypotheses as to why murders are getting harder to solve. The way society has gone and how compartmentalized people are. The second theory is there are more people killing random people, which makes the investigation tougher. Those killers, experts believe, are savvier than in the past. They watch TV. They know how to create some sort of doubt. They create two separate crime scenes. They move a body. They introduce staging, Arnsfield said. Third, he believes less qualified people are attracted to policing and move up the ranks to major crime investigation. This is possibly the most frightening which is cities are continuing lowering the recruiting standards because people, because they're desperate for people. Police work is not sought out as a profession anymore, certainly not in this country. Some agencies have no credit check, no physical tests, no written tests. Essentially, people who would have been screened out immediately from being considered are now getting in. In two to three years are winding up in specialty units like homicide, he said. When asked if data crunchers and criminal analysts have any idea how many serial killers are out there, he said, we estimate there's 4,000 active in the United States right now, but lack of homicide data available in Canada makes it impossible to estimate the number of serial killers here, Arnsfield said. Even a fraction of the numbers they believed are operating in the U.S. would likely be shocking figures for most Canadians. While Canada is leaps ahead of the U.S. in terms of admitting Indigenous women and girls are disproportionately at risk of going missing or being found murdered, he doesn't believe the National Enquirer will do anything to take the issue further. Dr. Michael Arnsfield is a professor, criminologist, and homicide scholar at Western University, where he founded the university's Cold Case Society Unsolved Think Tank, a data-driven victim initiative that had earned him Western Last Humanitarian of the Year Award. He's also co-director of the Murder Accountability Project in Washington, D.C., the world's largest homicide database that uses a prioritary algorithm to identify previously undetected patterns in serial homicides among nearly a million murder dating back to 40 years. The website is called murderdata.org. So many of the missing murdered women in the downtown east side has been labeled as forsaken women, nobodies, abandoned women, marginalized women, drug sec women, and sex trade workers, and poor women, indigenous women, and missing murdered women. These words were repeated emphatically in the final report of the Missing Woman's Commission of Inquiry in the aftermath of Robert Picton's reign of terror in the downtown east side. The truth of the matter is, is that these marginalized women have been among the leaders in the battle for justice 
for missing murdered women. These forsaken women, these nobodies, these sex trade workers have a long history of organizing politically and demanding that someone answers for the violence experienced, not only by the missing women, but generally by the marginalized women of the downtown east side. Yes, these women are marginalized. Yes, they have been forsaken by society. Yes, they are missing and murdered. But equally important to know that these marginalized women are warriors fighting to have their voices heard by the powers to be, fighting for a better life for the forsaken and the marginalized. For the marginalized women of the downtown east side. However, if anyone is listening, my sincerest condolences to all the families who have been victimized by the loss of a loved one, to all the advocates who are fighting for justice for their loved ones, my heart goes out to you. So I want to thank you for listening. Uh, this uh, episode is really an introductory. I, in the next episode, I will be talking about a, a horrible little creep called Gilbert Jordan, who's known as a boozing barber. Since the 1960s to 2007, he terrorized women on the downtown east side using booze as his murder weapon. He would lure women, asking them if they want to go drink with him, party with him, paying for sex, uh, pay them more for drinking with him. And he'd really force alcohol and booze on them. And when they were passing out, he would literally pour vodka down their throat until they died charged for a single case of manslaughter, very manipulative, knew how to work the system, had access to good lawyers because he had uh, some inheritance, and he really terrorized and manipulated the system and murdered a lot of women and got away with a lot of horrible crimes. After the boozing barber, I have a lot of research and I'm going to be having a co-host join me to break down the events of the Robert Picton pig farm very a deep dive. There's so much into that. Lots, lots, huge case, huge, lot, so many victims, so much evidence to go through. I want to thank the listeners for the incredible growth over the last year. We're heading into the new year. It's going to be 2022. This year was an extremely challenging year for me, as you people probably know if you've been following me. I still have a few ongoing challenges, but they're all completely handled. But they're but they have majorly impacted my life. If you've been following me on Instagram, you probably know what I'm talking about. I'm not going to really get too much into it in this podcast. But everything is moving forward. I have I've been building great. Uh, relationships. I'm working on some sponsorship deals. And it's also uh, amazing news to report. I've been invited to be to do a true crime presentation at the Vancouver Con uh, Convention Center at the Fan Expo. So I'm looking forward to that. I will break that down more. And I have a lot of collaborations planned uh, that I'm working on as well. So lots going on, lots in the pipeline. Uh, excited to be putting out some amazing crime stories and and also too just uh, providing some awareness to these situations that are you know that need more exposure so thank you so much i appreciate all of you i wish you guys all a very merry christmas a happy new year spending some time with your family your friends eating some good food it's important to balance your life enjoy yourself and Please be kind to each other. I look forward to interacting with all of you more so in the future. Thank you so much. Have a great day.